Welcome to the St. Moses Church Podcast. Thanks for joining us. St. Moses is a new church sharing the hope of Christ in the heart of Baltimore. If you unfold a quartered map of the city of Baltimore, you'll find us right where the creases intersect. If you have any questions or any way we can help you, please don't hesitate to reach out at info at St. Mo's, that's S-A-I-N-T-M-O-S dot org. Now, let's continue with the podcast. So much, Pastor Sam. Thank you, Pastor Kim, and all who work to uh, lead our kids. What a great job they did. That's so fun. And they'll, they'll, they'll only get more confident. So uh, what, a, what a pleasure to have them sing this morning. Some of you will be familiar with Chinua Achebe's breakthrough novel, When Things Fall Apart. The chief character is a man named Okonkwo, and he is introduced to us in an interesting way. This is what it says about Okonkwo early on in the book. Perhaps down in his heart, Okonkwo was not a cruel man, but his whole life was dominated by fear, the fear of failure and of weakness. Okonkwo's fear was greater than the fear of magic or greater than the fear of the forest. It was not external, but lay deep within himself. It was the fear of himself, lest he should be found to resemble his father. What a way to be introduced. Today we're talking about fatherhood, and I mentioned that right here at the top end because fathers and the concept of fatherhood can be upsetting for some of us, depending on our experiences. If you need to pop out at any moment to grab a cup of water or to refresh your coffee, feel free to do that. I won't be at all offended. Um, But if you're able to sit with a degree of discomfort, particularly here at the top end, I think there is profoundly good news for us in store this morning. Our phrase, raising children, comes from a particularly memorable, unforgettable Roman practice. When a baby was born in Russian society into a Russian household, the baby was presented to the pater familias, the father of the household. And if the father wanted that child, he would literally raise the child, taking the child in his arms, holding him aloft. Think Simba's presentation at at, uh, Pride Rock. That's raising a child. And if he didn't want the child, the child was set aside on the floor, rejected, exposed to his or her fate. And some of you will know that one of the earliest ways the Christians imposed themselves on Roman culture was by scouring the rubbish tips of antiquity to find these babies who had been abandoned because their fathers refused to raise them. Some markers in our culture right now suggest that we are experiencing a crisis of fatherhood. A recent book on fathering published by Baker and researched by Barna um, gives this snapshot. It's pretty grim. It says, children without fathers are four times more likely to live in poverty, are more likely to suffer emotional and behavioral problems, have higher levels of aggressive behavior than children born into married homes, have two times the risk of infant mortality, are more likely to go to prison, only one in five prison inmates grew up with their father present, are twice as likely to be involved in early sexual activity. 
This snapshot is a disturbing one. It, it highlights the damage that absent fathers can cause and, uh, of course, present but abusive fathers can also be very damaging. But, but if we look at this snapshot, not so much as a snapshot, but, but for what it means, think of, think of the, uh, the, the Kodak um, negative. When we, when we do that, we see this truth. Fathers and mothers, but this morning we're focusing on fathers, hold tremendous potency for the lives of their children, for good or for ruin, for blessing or for cursing, for security or for insecurity. As President Obama has quipped, any fool can have a kid. That doesn't make you a father. It's the courage to raise a child that makes you a father. Let me pray for us, and we'll get down to work. Father, would you come among us this morning by your Spirit? I believe you're here. We've asked for you to be here. We've invited you here. You promised in your word that when we gather in your name for your glory, that that you show up. And Father, we just pray that you would, would be inhabiting the praises we have sung for you this morning. We ask now that by your Spirit you'd help us get into an ancient text, that you would make our hearts humble enough to hear you, courageous enough to hear you, faithful enough to hear you. We pray that you would do whatever you need to do in our hearts and minds this morning so that we hear your Father's heart for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our teaching text today is the same text we've been in for the last three weeks. It comes to us from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. This is what it says. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is our final Sunday in the season of Advent. If you did not grow up uh, around the church calendar as I did not, then it might be helpful to know that this church calendar is, uh, is the innovation, the, the missionary innovation of Christians in the Middle Ages who are trying to solve this problem. How do you teach people who have no familiarity with Jesus, and who by and large cannot read, how do you teach them the good news of King Jesus? And the answer they came up with was to calibrate time to the story of God's love. This story, we all love stories, this story, the story of God's love that climaxes in a baby being born unto us in King Jesus. That story is wrapped around a 365-day calendar year. And Advent is the season leading up to Christmas, the celebration of Jesus being born in the world. And during Advent, we remember that the people in the Old Testament had to wait. They had to wait for a promised, prophesied Messiah. And so, too, we now, as we remember them waiting, we await his return. Our teaching text comes to us from a prophecy uh, that was given regardless of when you date Isaiah. It was given hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. And I've suggested over the last few weeks that the person giving this prophecy was, was speaking, uh, had sort of a near-term view. He most likely was talking in the first instance about a king who would be born shortly in a few years whose name would be Hezekiah. And as we've seen in some provisional ways, Hezekiah seemed to embody this list of titles, grand titles, wonderful counselor, mighty God. 
But with, with each successive name, it's like the gap between Hezekiah and the title widens. Wonderful counselor? Oh, all right. All right, we can sort of see that in a sense. Mighty God? Yeah. I mean, he had an incredible military route, but he's far from God. And now, everlasting Father, eternal Father? That's a stretch. A few times in the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, also known as the Old Testament, God is referred to as Father, or, or at least the text uh, references him in a way that we understand that to be the backdrop. For instance, Exodus 4, where God's people, the Hebrew people, are enslaved in Egypt, and God tells Moses, go to the tyrant king Pharaoh and demand that he release my people. Exodus 4.22 says this, God speaking to Moses, then you will tell him, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my Firstborn son, I commanded you, let my, or I command you, let my son go so he can worship me. Furthermore, in, a, in a sort of a provisional sense, the kings of Israel and Judah were meant to point to God's fatherhood. They were meant to mediate God's fathering characteristics, protection and provision for the people, which of course they didn't do that well. If you read through the stories of the kings of Judah and Israel, you don't come away with the impression that this was a a lot of particularly good fathers to their own kids, let alone fathers to the people. Even the greatest, even the greatest of all that list of kings, King David, was a thoroughly imperfect dad, which I take comfort in. As with each of these names in this series, we don't really find a good fit for the title until hundreds of years later, we get to Jesus. And so it's reflecting on his life, on his birth, on his character that the early Christians realize, oh yeah, oh yeah, this is the one. This is the child born to us. This is the one who can fill out these shoes. This is the one who fulfills the magnitude of these titles. So everlasting father, how does Jesus fill that out? Of course, he never had any kids himself. He was bo- he he grew up. He lived and died and was resurrected a single man. He had his own father. We we know relatively little about Joseph, the man who raised Jesus as his son, though he wasn't biologically the father. The glimpses that we get of Joseph are inspiring. I was thinking about this uh, just a few weeks ago when he learned that his fiance Mary was pregnant. Think how you'd feel about that. Though they had not been together, rather than blow up and rather than use all of the legal levers, which were at his disposal rather than hers, to shame her and to ruin her, he determines that he's going to quietly end things. But remember, an angelic visitor came and explained to him the miraculous circumstances of this pregnancy, and and he had the faith to believe that God was in this. That, That is a stretch. And he had the courage to raise this man, this boy Jesus, as his own. That is inspiring. But by the time Jesus is an adult, Joseph doesn't, we hear nothing more of him. He's faded from the picture. Almost certainly he died while Jesus was young, maybe a teenager. And so Jesus 
earthly father was a stand-up guy. From what we can tell, he was present, he was attentive, he was an active, involved dad from what we can tell. But if we want to understand how Jesus, a single man, fills out this title, Everlasting Father, then we've got to look at what Jesus reveals of his heavenly father, not of Joseph. As we've seen, the, the Old Testament does portray God as father, a few times. That verse we looked at a smattering of other times, but most of the time, the metaphors the Old Testament uses to talk about God are king, creator, uh, shepherd, uh, leader, mighty warrior, things like that. Rarely father. But once Jesus comes on the scene over 150 times, he refers to God as father. The, the fatherhood of God is absolutely central to the character of God. And, and, and in Jesus, it snaps into clear focus for the very first time, unprecedentedly so. We glimpse the unfathomable goodness of God in his fatherhood for Jesus. We see this intimacy and this security shows up very early on in the story. Let's talk about what this fatherhood looks like. It gives us vocation, calling. It gives us a way to walk in. It teaches us how to live. In the pre-industrial world, still in much of the world today, you got your vocation from your father. If your dad was a farmer, you became a farmer. If your dad was a car mechanic, you become a car mechanic. If your dad sold encyclopedias door-to-door, you're out of luck. This is very much the background that's in view in the gospel. So we see several of the disciples are following in their father's vocations. They're learning his craft. They're becoming fishermen like he was a fisherman. Jesus' dad, Joseph, was a laborer. He was a builder, probably a stonemason. If any of you have been to Galilee, not a ton of lumber there. More than likely, Jesus worked at his dad's elbow, probably in the nearby three miles away, Roman town being built up called Tsipori. He probably was there handing his dad a hammer or a chisel when he needed it. But strikingly, Jesus does not end up a builder in that sense. Instead, we glimpse him very early on getting his vocation from his heavenly father. Remember that scene? Luke chapter 2. Jesus and Mary and Joseph travel from up north all the way to Jerusalem for the Passover. And it's over, and they head back, and it takes a full day for his mom and dad to recognize that Jesus is not in the traveling party. This might be the most comforting verse in the Bible. Those of you who are about to become parents, Barnets, Wongs, others, memorize this. Preach it to your heart at your first parenting fail. This will bail you out. It takes them three days to find the kid, 12 years old. And they find him in the temple. And when Mary begins to give him an earful, understandably, this is what he responds, Luke 2.49. Why did you need to search? Didn't you know I must be involved in my father's business? Jesus is apprenticing, for sure. He's not becoming a builder. He's not planning to become a religious scholar formally or a priest formally. He's learning his calling from his heavenly father. This apprenticeship idea, of course, is is part of the idea of discipleship. We learn what to do and how to be 
from the people we most closely follow. Fathers, mothers too, have unequaled potential to form the character and to shape the trajectory of their children by deliberately being with them and by modeling behavior. My dad was not a pastor, but at one point, three of his five kids were pastors. He, in many ways, shaped, where's Kenneth? He, in many ways, shaped the way we imagined what it is to become men. I've shared with you before learning what repentance looked like from my dad. He had a temper. We didn't suffer physically, but uh, we caught an earful when we left his tools miles out into the woods after building a fort. We caught an earful when we let the goats out of the enclosure and they were found on the road miles away. More than one hole appeared in the drywall from his fist or from something thrown. But when I was about five, I remember him consistently sharing in our daily family worship time that he was sorry. He would apologize to whomever he'd blown up at. And he would ask us to pray for God to help transform his temper. It wasn't every day, but it was so regularly over months and years that it formed my imagination of what it meant to become a man. And by the time our baby sister was a teenager, maybe it's no coincidence, he was completely different. Gentle, patient, deeply empathetic. The God, the Father that Jesus came to reveal to us is a Father who invites us to come to him and to learn from him how to be, how to behave, what way to walk in, how to become the people that he is calling us to be. We get our vocation from our Father. But he also gives us our identity. The everlasting Father that Jesus came to reveal gives us our identity. And think of this. In the Gospels, you hard, the four story tellings of the life of Jesus, you hardly ever hear God speak directly. When he speaks, it's usually through Jesus or through one of the prophets, Anna or Simeon, someone like that. But when, on those few occasions, we hear a voice directly from heaven, as it were, this is what he says each time, essentially, about Jesus. This is my son whom I Love, I am so pleased with him. Talk about words to live by. These are words to live from. We're in a unique moment in world history. When it comes to the resources that we draw on to, 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 to inform our identities, to, to craft what we might call our self-conception. In previous centuries, things like your village, your tribe, your family, your parents' family business, all of these things were the building blocks of identity. In some really great ways, and also in some profoundly troubling ways, those sources of self have shifted in Western culture. You don't have to go farther than the final tribal council of the current season of Survivor. I think I'm the only one who still watches that show (laughs) to see this. The, The key theme was, I am my own inspiration. Or take Elsa's identity quest in Frozen. She's ostensibly, remember, setting out to find out more about her parents' story and about her people. But the lyric that Adina Menzel ends up singing is this. Show yourself. I'm not going to sing it for you. Show yourself. Step into your power. Grow yourself into something new. You are the one you've been waiting for all of my life. There's, don't get me wrong, there's some good empowerment here. 
but I'm worried that the roots don't go deep. To paraphrase my friend John Tyson, never in history has a major civilization tried to build self-identity on something as fragile as Westerners are today. Not only is it fragile, it's exhausting, exhausting continually to reinvent ourselves, to construct new identities built on nothing broader or deeper or more durable than our own resource. But the everlasting Father didn't sit back and wait for us to self-construct, to to reinvent ourselves. And again, he gifts us identity, the identity of children, beloved daughter. I love you. I'm pleased with you. You are my son. I am pleased with you. I want to raise you. I want you to be part of my family and be called by my name and take on my attributes. I'm going to say something now that's going to put a wrinkle in our sensibilities for a moment. We're not all children of God. In popular religious chatter, you'll often hear people, quite well-known people say, we're all children of God. But my impression is that what the Bible wants to say quite clearly is that we're all, every last one of us, made in the image of God, but we're only his children if we're in relationship with him. Remember that Obama quote? It's raising a child that makes you a father. The way we become children of God, the New Testament teaches, is by adoption. We're not naturally God's children. We're not naturally, most of us, we're not naturally in relationship with him. We're more like orphans, but through Jesus, God extends us the invitation of adoption. Some of you have fostered and adopted, and that is so amazing. What a picture of God's love. And you know, if you're going to do that process, you can't just like phone it in. You've got to show up. Emmanuel. God has come to be among us in Jesus to offer us adoption. He wants to give us the life-orienting identity. You are my beloved daughter, Martina, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. One New Testament author, Paul, is reflecting on this gift, and this is what he writes in Romans. So you have not received a spirit of fear that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you have received God's spirit when he adopted you as his children. And now we call him Abba Father. Some of you speak Korean. Abba is the same. Abba Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. I love that. Abba. Not, not the Scandinavian supergroup. Abba. I remember, I remember uh, years ago helping to lead a uh, Bible study trip in Jerusalem. You're walking through the cobblestone streets, and I heard a young kid's voice, probably Torrin's age, crying out. And what I heard him saying was, Abba, Abba. And I wheeled around just in time to see he had beckoned his father over so he could leap off steps. And I swung my camera up, and I snuck this picture. This is what I think of when I think of Abba, the arms that you learn to trust. John says this in his first epistle, 1 John 3, verse 1, see how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we're God's children because 
They don't know him. The gift of identity from the everlasting father, as that verse points out, it it flows out of God's love for us. Some of us had wonderful earthly fathers. Some of us had rubbish or absent earthly fathers. But for those of us who had good earthly fathers, in a sense, their love points to the love of the everlasting father. But his love is in a category all to itself. The everlasting father loves us unconditionally, unconditionally. One of the ways he shows that is through his presence, through his attention to us. Erica Funkhauser uh, has written a striking poem called My Father's Lunch. In a way, it's a meditation on, uh, on the power of meals, on the power of moments, so a way sometimes it just seems like time slows down, like somebody took their finger off the scrub bar on YouTube. But the poetic hinge, what makes this magical moment in this poem is, is just the Father's loving presence, his attention. Here are a few lines from it. Saturday afternoon, he'd sit at the kitchen table in khakis and a work shirt, white napkin, a beer, a serrated knife, pieces of prosciutto or head cheese or kippered herring layered on slabs of black bread. Outside... The ripe hay fields or the stacks of shutters or the forest needing to be cleared or the snow needing to be pushed aside lay still as they waited for him to finish his lunch. For now, he was ours, whether he smelled of choke cherry, tractor oil, or twine. He was ours. There's something particularly potent about a parent's attentive presence. Fathers and mothers too. And if you're a dad here today realizing that, that you haven't been around that much, my point isn't to make you feel bad. We're, we're all learning. Within the last seven days, in a week when I was preparing a talk on being a father, I received a gentle text on my way home from work one day reminding me when I got home to play with my wonderful kids rather than settling in to do more work from the couch. I know it's so easy to be distracted. It's easy to be not present. It's easy to be too busy, even for children who long for us to be present and attentive. But the remarkable thing about the unconditional love of the everlasting Father revealed by his Son is that he is present, eager to be with us, attentive to us, even when we have blown him off even when we have run the other way. Perhaps the most famous fathering story that Jesus tells goes this way. He says, A son insolently and prematurely demanded his inheritance from his father and left his home and his father like a house on fire. And once he has burned through his dad's cash and he's been reduced to feeding pigs, he reflects on his life at home, his former life. And he remembers that even the, the, farm, the hired farm workers had plenty to eat, let alone the children of the household. So the son resolves to head towards home and he decides he's going to beg his dad to just hire him on as, as a farm laborer. But from the moment his Regret-ridden silhouette breaks the horizon. His dad is running. Not away from him, but towards him. Arms wide open in loving welcome. 
He envelops the son in a hug that says, I am here. I'm so glad you're back. All is forgiven. Even the best dads, human dads, fall short. Our our love is always conditional. Sometimes, terribly, it's conditioned on performance. Sometimes it's conditioned by our, our time. Inevitably, it is conditioned simply by the bounds of our mortality. We're limited people. We die. A couple of years ago, Kenneth and I lost our dad. It was actually on a Sunday morning. Poor Ken had to hang on to that news on his own so that I could preach before learning it. I remember later that week sitting in Starbucks with earbuds in trying to write a eulogy and becoming aware that Tears were pouring off my cheeks, and people were looking at me. (laughs) PSL, guys. Something else. And I put in my earbuds and put on my running shoes, and I went to that Lake Roland Trail that some of you know, and I started running. Before I got to that bridge, I heard what sounded like a little boy's words, but it was my voice crying out, I just want my dad. He was a wonderful, loving, present dad. But his ability to be those things bumped up against his mortality, as it will for all of us. But it won't for your everlasting father. His love knows no bounds. Death cannot separate you from his love. He he won't get old. He is not too busy. His memory will not fail. He loves you with an unconditional, everlasting love. Some of you are here this morning just checking Christianity out, maybe for the first time. And I want to say you're an inspiration. That takes courage. And that is so awesome. I'm really impressed with you being here, but you might be wondering, like, what does this have to do with me? Remember that rather harrowing Roman custom? Raising a child? Maybe you had a great dad. Maybe you had an absent dad or a rubbish dad. But what this has to do with you is that Jesus has revealed to us that the divine person at the heart of the universe has a perfect parental character. What Jesus has revealed to us is he came into the world and he experienced from us what it is to be set aside, what it is to be rejected, what it is to be abandoned. He experienced from what us what it is to be raised, but raised up for death so that you and I could see the heart of the Father who wants to raise us, who wants to claim you as his own, who wants to have a relationship with you, who wants to speak his love over you. You might have ignored him your whole life. You might have raged against him for most of your life. You you might have done things that you find hard even to forgive yourself. But if you'll let him, he wants to raise you. He wants to say... My beloved daughter, this is my son in whom I'm pleased. If you'll allow him to, he wants to take you in his arms and call you his own. He wants to love you with an everlasting love. Advent each year confronts us with mysteries. It confronts us with the mystery that the king came into creation as a subject. 
It confronts us with the mystery that the mighty God, El Gabor, who Sam preached about last week, came into his world as a needy baby. The everlasting Father comes to us as a son who doesn't even have a biological father, but a son who will reveal the heart of the everlasting Father. Is his spirit joining with your spirit this morning to confirm, confirm that you're his child? Do you have that, that Abba cry in your heart? Everlasting Father, I know that you love me despite all the ways that I let you down, despite all the ways I hurt my fellow people. Maybe some of you are sensing this morning that you need to head towards home. Maybe you're sensing it's, it's time to, to head back to the arms of the Father. Maybe you've been worried that when he sees your face, he will lash out, but he won't. The everlasting Father that Jesus reveals to us is a Father who sees you coming and is already there running with arms wide open to embrace you, arms outstretched. Maybe some of you this morning need to accept his forgiveness He doesn't begrudge it. Maybe you're finding it hard to forgive yourself, but he knew, as Kim said, from the foundations of the world that you would need it. He knows our need, and he came to offer us forgiveness. Maybe some of us this morning need to hear him speak our identity over us again. You're his daughter. You've leaned the weight of your life on him. You are his daughter. He loves you. And he holds you aloft, apple of his eye. He is pleased with you. You are his son, in whom he is pleased. He loves you with an everlasting love. Now live from that security. Amen. Father, would you come along us and do by your spirit what I can't do with words? Join your spirit with our spirits.